Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, we, we're talking about large-scale solar installations this week. We talk a lot about smaller systems on homes or, or businesses, but now we're going to talk about some really big systems. And here's the logic. Solar panels are continuing to get cheaper and cheaper. You know, the tariff is there, it's raised the pricing, but there's no doubt in my mind that the pricing in the future is going to continue to decline. And these if these panels are getting more and more efficient. And by the same token, electricity for whatever reason, from the utilities, keeps getting more and more expensive. So it's no surprise that solar installations keep getting bigger and bigger to take advantage of these economies of scale and less expensive electricity from solar. When I started doing solar PV installations back in 2001, the biggest projects were about 5 megawatts. Just over the past few years, I've seen several 500 megawatt installations go in here in the U.S., and there's several 1,000 megawatt installations. That's a gigawatt in India and China. Now, there's projects underway in the U.S. for these gigawatt systems. So to put a gigawatt plant in perspective, it's twice the capacity of most natural gas plants. It's going to cover about 10 square miles. It's going to have over 3 million solar panels. It's going to imply thousands of people during construction. So to talk about projects of this size, my special guests are Mark Cox and Shola Asheru with the New Energy Fund 2. I've known these guys, heck, for almost 15 years, and, and they were big enthusiasts early on in, in the early 2000s of, of solar. They're working on a 1.2 gigawatt project right now, which would be one of the biggest systems in the world, and certainly the biggest in the U.S. So welcome to the show, Mark and Shola. Thank you for having us, Barry. Thanks, Barry. All right, great. I kind of gave a little bit of background, but you guys are, are certainly a lot more familiar with it. Tell us about this gigawatt-scale solar project that you're working on. So, um, it's Mark here. Just before I answer the question, Barry, I just wanted to acknowledge, as you said earlier, you've known us for a long time, that uh, during the first New Energy Fund, um, one of the best investment decisions I'd made was to buy some Akina solar stock. And uh, that was uh, something that dates all the way back to 2006 now, so that's over uh, 12 years. Um, so between that fund and our current fund, um, we were advisors on large gigawatt-scale solar projects in Asia. And to help form the current strategy of our current fund, New Energy Fund 2, we were looking for solar projects in the U.S. and eventually became advisors to this 1.2 gigawatt project in Arizona. And it's located um, in uh, northwest Arizona. Um, the solar insulation is almost perfect there, as you know, um, and it has a whole bunch of really amazing uh, characteristics. It's got two 230-kilovolt distribution lines running right over the land, and there's adequate road access. Um, it's close to some big cities. Uh, it's got a railway line on the southern edge and plentiful water and a major gas pipeline available for a firming plant if needed. That was one of the original ideas. And um, there's an existing substation just four miles to the north of the project area and plenty of demand centers in Nevada, California, and Arizona for the electricity, all connected to grids run by up to about six large utilities. And the land is private, and the project is, as you said, permitted for 1.2 gigawatts of solar, which could actually be built out in 200, 300, or 400 megawatt tranches um, every year until it's completed. 
That sounds like a tremendous project. You know, it's interesting that you're bringing up some of the characteristics of this project with distribution and road access and railways and gas and substations. You know, a lot of people don't think about when they're putting solar on their business or home. So I think it would be good to drill down a little bit more about why these characteristics are so important to the success of a big project. Well, it's um, obviously with a big project like that, you're importing a lot of equipment, a lot of people, and then all of the service um, that they need to depend on, the food and the places they've got to live, or if they're going to be on site, they've got to be trucked in every day, and the machinery to grade the, the surfaces of the site. There's an awful lot that's got to be done. So if you do have roads, that's great. If you have water, obviously during the operational um, activity of the um, project, it's going to be used for cleaning the surfaces of the panels every so often, especially in the desert southwest. Um, but it's obviously a major mainstay for um, supporting the project in its construction phase as well. Um, they might use the railway line to import um, the uh, panels from um, a port nearby, say in Los Angeles, um, from the ocean. Um, all of those things are very valuable infrastructure that helps the panel get the, the project gets constructed. Yeah, and those are and things that. Oh, go ahead. Completely baffled and excited by all the amenities that this project has. It's very rare that you'll find a project with all of these characteristics. So that those are the things that really attracted us to this massive project. Wow. All right. Now, anything special about the technology that you're using for this project? Panels, trackers, inverters. What's different now than than ten years ago? So it's true to say that they were slow to adapt the, the thing from a regular PV fixed-tilt um, project, but it became um, a single-axis tilt um, about a year ago when the economics made that um, happen. And it's interesting because, of course, um, when you go single-axis, um, uh, you can get about 25% more power output, so it's really well worthwhile if the cost of installing all of those um, tracker mechanisms is less than the revenues that you're going to get from selling the electricity. Um, the second axis um, is still just on the verge of being too expensive, but we think that that could come in uh, vogue too in the next six months or so, given the way that, as you said earlier, costs are coming down. Um, the technology that's finally chosen, the brand names and so forth, will probably be dependent on the final investor EPC mix. Um, but, you know, obviously the desired technology will be the lowest cost tier one panels, single axis trackers and string inverters that can manage as much power as possible reliably for a long time. Um, we calculated there's probably going to be about 370 of the largest type of inverters. And um, if you use high-efficiency monocrystalline panels, you could probably get away with only using 2.5 million. But if you're using regular poly from 16 to 17% uh, efficiency, you might need up to 4 million panels. And the project intends to capture you know, all of the fixed-tilt energy plus the single-axis energy, which would be 25% more, and um, the specific tracker details are up for grabs, really. Yeah, so I guess it really depends. When when you're closer to construction and purchasing things, you see what's available on the market, you see who has the best deal on the trackers, yeah. et cetera. Okay. Now, what about, because I've been talking to some friends in, in you know, the industry, and they're starting to look at 
at adding storage to these big projects. Is that anything at all that starts making economic sense for a system of this size? So, yes. Um, believe it or not, this project, like I said, it hadn't really gone into single um, axis um, until about a year ago. Um, but they haven't really been thinking of storage very much, and it started coming up in the last year. And so now it's almost an option that's not going to sort of disappear. So up to this point, although the advantages of using it are very clear, all of the details still have to be worked out. The land where the project is built has um, a major gas line, as we mentioned. And so the earlier idea of having baseload power coming from gas generation um, firming um, uh, was very positive for that. And they um, are now thinking that, you know, to go properly green, um, you could just store some of the peak power and use it later. And, of course, the famous duck-shaped California power consumption curve means that a lot of the power is now actually being consumed after sunset. So the storage for such a large um, uh, array would probably be well served um, meeting that duck-shaped demand later on in the day. Um, however, there are several strategies, as you know, and some of them can be used simultaneously to earn money. And one of the big ones is if the, will, the utilities, if the PPA arrangement with the utility was such that there was time-of-day pricing, then obviously they could use um, cheaper um, uh, sunlight hours to store and then release the power when they could earn more money from it. Yeah, there's a lot of advantages to storage, and you know, some of my friends are working in companies like Next Tracker, where they're kind of building storage in with a tracker, and it means that you can use a smaller inverter, plus you're able to take advantage of some of the new utility requirements of buying some of these assets that are going to provide power in the middle of the night. So that's actually really, really cool. Okay, Mark and Shola, great initial discussion about the benefits of this project, but what are some of the biggest problems in developing huge projects like this? found with this um, project that we're working on in Arizona is there's a bit of a chicken and an egg dilemma um, with getting the PPA without financing or financing without the PPA. So that's really the biggest challenge right now is overcoming that. Now, what about things like environmental regulations and, and uh, you know, th that, that seems to be really holding up projects of all sizes? So the great thing about this project is it's actually already completed two EIS studies. So when we do have to get an updated one, it's typically just, I mean, it's still the same characteristics, so it should be much easier getting that third one. So that's actually a hurdle that we've overcome, which is great. Yeah, I, I guess it's really hard to raise financing if there's still those environmental questions out there. Now, how has the 30% tariff on imported solar panels affected the project economics? With that 30% tariff, we weren't actually too surprised that that was going to happen. And this, of course, will affect the bottom line. But the prices of modules and cells are dropping steadily over time. So we feel that that will be partially offset. And one of the things that we're finding with foreign manufacturers is what they'll do is they'll import their cells to the U.S. and then do the assembly here in the U.S. So that impact of the tariff is lessened. However, there's another headwind, though, that um, recently came up, and that's with the Department of Commerce's plan to levy a tariff of 24% on aluminum and steel, and this could drastically increase the balance of system costs. And, of course, the aluminum and steel are used for the racking systems and for the module frames. 
So that that's an interesting new um, development. <laughs> yeah, boy, you know, you, you it's like whack-a-mole. You know, you fix one problem, you get another, and and. From an overall standpoint, no doubt in my mind that, that a free market is better for all kinds of energy, clean energy especially. And, you know, we're just dealing with more and more tariff issues. So I've always been stressed out by the fact that we can't assemble solar panels efficiently in the U.S. because the aluminum extrusions are so expensive, the machine aluminum extrusions. They're half the price of the same quality in China, even delivered. But we can't just bring in the extrusions, so we have to kind of purchase those locally, and that raises the price. I was in China a few weeks ago, and they were telling me that the price of solar panels in large scale there is 28 cents a watt. I mean, it just kind of blew me away. And, yeah. you know, certainly if you're going to write a check for a gigawatt of panels, you're going to be able to buy at the lowest prices in the world. But, you know, right now with the 30 plus the 30 percent tariff, it's almost 60 percent tariff. You know, you're looking at 40 cents or a watt or more, which kind of is terrible as far as the economics. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so you're developing this project as part of the new energy fund number two. Tell me a little bit about this fund and how it's evolving. So the project that we're working on is actually um, separate from our fund. This is one of the activities that we took on to help inform what we would do in our fund. But it is, has been very helpful and great learning for New Energy Fund 2. But the goal of New Energy Fund 2 is to take equity positions in renewable energy projects, and that's all technology, so not just solar. And um, these projects have to be based in North America and Western Europe. There's no technology risk, and we don't, also don't take any development risk. I know you guys come from a finance background. You know, Shola, I used to work with your investment bank, and Mark, we go back way, you know, way in the past. But tell, us, tell our listeners a little bit more about the successes that you guys have had in your previous ventures. So, um it's, it's definitely, you know, I go back a long, long time in this solar thing, um, reaching back to 1979 when uh, a teacher in Nigeria, I was a teacher, and the headmistress said to me, um, Mark, I want you to do a, a science project with the kids. I had multiracial kids from Poland, England, Nigeria, Japan, and they were all great. And um, so I said, let's make uh, two big parabolic mirror dishes and boil some water. And uh, so by the open day, when all the parents came and everything was up, um, these two dishes were cooking sausages and boiling water merrily. We even had a little steam engine uh, running a motor that was providing electricity for a flashlight. And in view of everything that's happened since 1979, you know, I kind of wish I'd gone back to that point and just consolidated and made a company to do it right there. (laughs) But um, that was a a good moment, and I, I stayed with that ever since. Um, And so, basically, I started what was um, effectively the very first pure play clean tech hedge fund in 2003, Um, and we had uh, Ted Turner was a flagship investor, and uh, we were doing really well, and and all of our investments were um, relatively early stage. If you like, it was like a VC fund, um, but we also had large stocks like First Solar and and even Akina Solar, and it was doing really well, and we had some big wins in terms of technology that didn't get picked up um, uh, properly later, but were really promising. In fact, I think we're going back to see some of them later. Um, Things like putting copper wires, for example, to pick up the bus wires on solar cells. At the moment, you're using silver and lead, and if you imagine making a gigawatt of these solar panels, 
um, you're using a lot of silver, expensive metals, lead and silver, but copper is much, much cheaper and much better electrically. It's had a problem trying to put it on silicon. It was called copper poisoning, and it wouldn't work properly. And then if we put a tiny bit of titanium between the copper and the silicon, it worked perfectly, and we figured out a way of doing that. And um, a couple of people were testing that, like Q-cells, and uh, that fell by the wayside, and it added 2% efficiency to each cell. So a 15% cell would go to a 17% cell. That was something that was really good. Yeah, that's pretty tremendous. All right. So looking at some of these new projects, what's the potential? Like how, how many gigawatt scale projects can we fit in the U.S.? You know, the, the one is good. I'm sure there's one done. There'll be more. But where else can we install these projects? So that's an interesting thing because we've got... Um, you know, as the, um, the world for um, coal-fired power stations is getting worse and worse, there's an awful lot of energy that's required to fill the gap. And, of course, with storage, solar is perfect for that. Um, and because the prices are coming down, as we keep saying, um, there's a huge amount of um, opportunity for gigawatt-scale um, projects. And already we've seen lots of multi-hundred um, megawatt uh, projects coming up. Um, but the economies of scale um, generally are getting better and better over time. Even the installation costs come down um, when you're getting a well-trained team of men with the right equipment, putting it into, you know, the, the strings get put in very efficiently. Um, and so even though transmission costs from remote locations might be um, more expensive, it offsets um, and uh, so that's a good. So there's um, a big downward pressure on the per watt amount that um, utilities are going to pay as well. They've noticed all of this, and they're not letting the developers off uh, and the EPCs off um, one inch um, by giving them any extra money. But uh, um, that's something that's going to limit things in a sense, because we've seen in really sunny places like um, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, um, very, very low PPAs awarded, um, but that's in very special circumstances. And uh, if you've got a regular 70 or 80 percent debt situation, um, obviously you're going to try and get the, uh, the highest PPA you can so you can sell your electricity at the best rate. But all those things um, being the same, as you said earlier, the reducing costs, the large scale makes it the lowest cost per watt. And, the DOE Sunshot um, project has actually achieved its goal of getting to utility $1 a watt, and now it's headed below. And as you say, you saw in China, much lower, and there's no sign of maturity in those costs yet. So it's very, very promising. Yeah, no, it's going to keep getting cheaper and cheaper. And, and you know, what, what really caught me eye about this project is one of the dilemmas is always getting access to transmission lines. And if you've got, you know, two really big transmission lines going right through that really simplifies it. You don't have to, to run that. So where are you guys going to go now? And you know, how, how can people get in touch with you at the New Energy Fund? Um, so you can reach us at www.newenergyfund2.com. Um, and our number is 917-941-0220. And I just wanted to also add that we really feel that with New Energy Fund 2 that we've come up with the ultimate structure. Um, unlike our first fund, where, um, unlike our first fund, there's no technology risk and there's low market correlation. And addition, in addition to that, with projects that are typically multi-year, 
offtake agreement with creditworthy offtakers. So there's a lot of visibility in the long-term cash flow outlook of our projects that we put into our funds. We're very excited about this, and we look forward to hearing from anyone that might have projects that need investment, or if they just want to talk about talk to us about what we're doing. We'd love to chat. All right, it's terrific. All right, well, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. And thanks to our guests, Mark Cox and Shola Asheru with New Energy Fund 2. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts. 